The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Dear listeners, very nice to have you with us today. We are going to be talking to a couple of wonderful gentlemen, and I'm so happy that you'll be part of the conversation as well. We are going to start this morning. Oh my gosh, if this show was called Person You Admire the Most, I think that would work pretty much just fine. And that is Alex Hershaft. Now, Alex has a birthday coming up but not his own. It is the 40th birthday of the organization that he founded, Farm Animal Rights Movement. So way back in 1976, oh my gosh, was anybody thinking about animal rights then? Well, Alex Alex Hershaft was. And Farm was founded on a belief in the inherent worth of animals and preventing cruelty to them. Among Farm's many endeavors is the annual first day of spring meet-out, the yearly Animal Rights National Conference that alternates between Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., where Farm Animal Rights Movement is headquartered. Now, Alex Hershaft himself, if you're not acquainted with this wonderful, wonderful person, he lived through the Holocaust, hiding in Warsaw, and emigrated to the U.S. at 16, earned a Ph.D. in inorganic chemistry, and worked in that field before turning his attention to the plight of farmed animals. Welcome, Alex Hershaft. Thank you so much, Victoria. You're always too kind to me. You're (laughs) embarrassing me. Oh, well, I'll embarrass you a whole lot Saturday night when you're having this fabulous party in Soho here in NYC. You can tell us about that a little bit later. But first, just let us know what got you from chemistry to animal rights. Sure. Well, I was, uh, uh, you know, I, as you mentioned, I survived the Holocaust uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto and uh, and also uh, in hiding outside the ghetto. And uh, once uh, the war was over, I had survivor's guilt. You know, I just felt, first of all, why was I spared so, when so many other good people were not? And also, how could I repay this tremendous debt? So I got involved in a number of social justice movements, and, uh, and none of them really seemed to fill the need that I felt until uh, the early 70s uh, when I 
moved to Washington and went to work for an environmental consulting firm that was working for the government and I was assigned to do a wastewater inventory at the slaughterhouse in the Midwest and there as I was taking my notes I came across uh, these uh, body parts, piles uh, of hearts and uh, lungs and heads and limbs and uh, I really was taken aback and it reminded me of the piles of uh, hair and uh, shoes and glasses that I saw in Auschwitz after the war and I drew the parallel between what the Nazis were doing to us and what we're doing to animals and uh, and I was particularly frightened by the silence uh, the the seeming not only acceptance by society but also the subsidies that uh, we hand over to the meat and dairy industries every time we go uh, shopping at our local supermarket and so this is this is what drove me to eventually establish uh, the Vegetarian Information Service in 1976 and then eventually the Farm Animal Rights Movement in 1981. What a wonderful history. It's really powerful, I think, certainly given your history, that you can speak to these parallels. And I know sometimes when people use the word Holocaust, even with a lowercase h, to describe what happens to animals, they're called out for that. But you you lived through that unspeakable time, and, and your father was killed, and you do compare these atrocities. So tell us some of the specific things that you see, slaughterhouses, animal treatment, and what, people experienced in arguably the worst time in human history? Well, a number of parallels, but even before getting into those, uh, I think it's really important to emphasize that uh, we're not talking here about comparing the moral value of the victims, because that is a totally different subject. Uh, What uh, I'm concerned about is the mindset of the oppressor, the facility they ease with which uh, upstanding, decent people uh, can engage in oppression either directly or indirectly through through personal subsidies as we do at the supermarket. And uh, that's really uh, what... Uh, what I want to point out to people is that uh, yes, the Nazis did horrible things and they did horrible things to people that I value very much which is my own family, my own people but nevertheless uh, other people are totally capable of oppressing other living beings including ourselves through our oppression of animals we raise for food and in our laboratories and circuses and zoos. So, uh, but the parallels that uh, that you were asking about uh, are really striking. So the the branding or tattooing of uh, identification numbers on the victims, uh, the use of cattle cars to transport our people to the uh, gas chambers, the crowding in wood crates of the victims of uh, both the Nazis and uh, the the meat industry, Uh, the secrecy uh, of what goes on behind the slaughterhouse walls or the gas chamber doors, Uh, the the deception uh, to keep the victims from rebelling, uh, just uh, really, and uh, also the the vilification and the beatings of the the abuse of the victims, which makes it then easier for the perpetrator to uh, to execute the final killing. Hmm. That that's it, those are very powerful parallels. I just want to ask you, Alex, as someone who is so dedicated to this cause and has been involved for so long. How are you taking to the news that that Tyson, I believe it's the world's largest meat company, uh, it's come out just this week that they're investing, I think, 5% ownership in a faux meat 
company. Mm-hmm. Right. So my vision of the future is not that Tyson's and McDonald's and Purdue's and Hormel are going to end up as heaps of uh, burnt ashes uh, and that a whole new generation of uh, vegan enterprises will rise on those ashes. My vision of the future is that this very perpetrators that we're condemning today will see the light and will realize that they can make profit by conducting an ethical business uh, rather than a business that involves oppression and abuse of animals. So I'm not as alarmed as some people are by the fact that uh, not only Tyson, I mean a number of uh, meat and dairy industries are buying up uh, vegan companies and uh, I think that's uh, that it's part of the transition process to the point where they will eventually stop abusing animals. That makes a lot of sense. And coming from you, it, it, it sounds very, very sensible. I think sometimes, Alex, that people who become vegan, people who get involved in animal rights and other causes, we're so cause-oriented, we're so idealistic that we have this idea that anybody in the meat industry really believes in meat, when actually they're just trying to make a profit. They'll make it from exactly. whatever the public wants to buy. Yep. So yeah. we're back to making vegans <laughs> business as usual. <laughs> so there yeah. are a lot of animal rights organizations today doing wonderful work. So tell us what's special, unique, and distinct about FARM. Sure. So we have uh, distinguished ourselves through the years, uh, not always, but certainly in recent years, by the fact that uh, we're strict abolitionists. In other words, uh, we don't believe that the path to uh, the vision that animals are not to be used for human gain, Uh, we don't feel that the path that vision is through welfare reforms, through uh, making the animals feel a little better or be treated a little less cruelly. We feel that the path to that uh, liberation is by getting people to reduce their consumption of animal products and eventually become vegan. So we have a little bit of a of an argument with the rest of uh, the animal rights movement, uh, but uh, we get along and uh, we all uh, we all hug and uh, talk at, <laughs> uh, at our an- annual conference, as you well know, and try to convince one another that uh, our path is the right one. And. That's very interesting because I have talked with other people who call themselves abolitionists and they would never use the, this phrase reduce and eventually get to veganism. You know, I, I've, I've been told that to tell anybody anything less than you have to go vegan day before yesterday, you're just not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Gary Franchon has his own <laughs> definition of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's, yeah. Uh, yeah, there is a lot of confusion between abolitionist vision and abolitionist strategy. So oh. I think we all agree on abolitionist vision. I think that uh, anybody who calls themselves an animal rights advocate agrees that the ultimate vision of for all of us should be that animals are not ours to use for food, uh, experimentation, uh, clothing, entertainment, or any other purpose. The question is, how do you get there? And we feel that the way you get there is by gradually reducing and eventually stopping all use of animals, whereas other people feel that the way to get there is by uh, treating animals less uh, cruelly, and we don't Mm. agree. Oh, goody. Well, that means I get to be an abolitionist, but I'm going to be an Alex Hershaft abolitionist. (laughs) So you're going to have a party. And that is happening this very Saturday evening right here on the glittery Isle of Manhattan. Tell us about that. 
and we're delighted to have you as an honored guest. Uh, this is quite an honor for us to have you there. Uh, well, uh, yeah, it's a very, very unusual venue. It's uh, with a tree growing through the middle of it. It's something really spectacular that I've never seen before. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's in Soho, as you point out. It's on Allen Street, just south of Houston. And uh, it's the address is 165 Allen Street. And uh, we have uh, wonderful food from Candle uh, uh, 79 Cafe, uh, wonderful desserts and appetizers and uh, drinks, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic. And uh, we have a great program. We have a brand new 40th anniversary video that was just completed uh, today. It's a seven-minute video about our history. And then we have a wonderful entertainer, Mike Kaplan, who is a vegan comedian, and he has performed at our conference in past years, and people just love his sense of humor, including myself, who's very critical of comedians. Oh, that'll but, be yeah, great. We really look forward to people being there. And if any of your listeners are interested, we have a special price for your listeners of only $90, reduced from 125 And uh, all they have to do is visit uh, anniversary.farmusa.org. That's anniversary.farmusa.org. That's wonderful. And we will put that in um, the MainStreetVegan.net show notes as well. So, oh, this is going to be so much fun. I know Jane Velez Mitchell is flying in from Los Angeles. You've got Russell Simmons on the host committee. This is going to be very glittery and fun. And are you going to speak? Tell us you'll speak because that's a big draw. <laughs> I'll speak some, but uh, that's, uh, the evening is not about me. It's about uh, the farm and our anniversary and our guest, honored guests. Okay, well, as long as it's a little bit about you. <laughs> a little bit about me. A little, little bit about you, yeah. You, you, you've done amazing things in the world and continue to do amazing things in the world. So my very last question, Alex. Sure. I know that... You have lived quite a while. People could piece that together from what you uh, explained about your your childhood and that. And so a lot of people talk about being vegan and how it's so healthy, and that's why we're all going to live long and well. What do you think about longevity and being vegan and loving animals? Oh, I have a lot of work to do. I have uh, three books in me and that I need to write, so I better stick around for another 20 years. <laughs> so maybe it's more having good work to do than necessarily eating kale every day. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it takes both. I think uh, the vegan diet certainly helps, and then, of course, uh, having a busy mind helps as well, and exercise. Yeah, I'd, all three. Yeah. Well, you got the you're the whole package, Alex. So thank oh. you so much for spending this time with us and and everybody just get over there to anniversary.farmusa.org and if you're in the New York City area or if you could get yourself here this Saturday, October 15th, Zen House in ever so chic Lower Manhattan to celebrate 40 years of wonderful work by Farm Animal Rights Movement. Thank you so much, Alex. I'll see you on Saturday. Thank you, Victoria. It's always a pleasure to be with you and your listeners. Well, that's fully mutual. And everybody else, speaking of eating that kale, we are going to be talking with Thomas Campbell, M.D., co-author of the China Study, author of the China Study Solution, and he's going to tell us how to be healthier than we ever dreamed. Stay with us.
Unity Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one, please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on a Course in Miracles with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free every Friday at 2 p.m. Central here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. And guess what we have? This is so exciting. We have a sponsor. We've never had one of those before. People have contacted me, and then we do research into the company or whatever it is, and we found out they're not necessarily quite all the way vegan, so haven't wanted to do that. And lo and behold, some of the best people on earth approached us to sponsor this program. So I am very, very honored and pleased to welcome on board Vegan Outreach You know Vegan Outreach. They are the people who are going to college campuses all over every place. I mean, seriously, U.S., Canada, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, and India, spreading a message of compassionate living at that time in life when it's really going to catch hold and take on and and carry forth. Vegan Outreach strives for a vegan society, and it's one of the world's most active organizations promoting a vegan lifestyle. Vegan Outreach also supports new and transitioning vegans with their Vegan Mentor Program. And you, you, yes, yourself, can get involved at veganoutreach.org. And be sure and subscribe for free, of course, to their weekly e-newsletter with news and free product giveaways and really good recipes, believe me. Really good recipes. I've used these. And you can subscribe there also at veganoutreach.org. So thanks very much to the good people of Vegan Outreach. I was just um, going through my files and finding their wonderful flyer called Compassionate Athletes. It's more than a flyer. It's a booklet because I wanted to give it to my trainer because, you know, I'm working on it. He's a nice guy. He's got two vegan clients. Good, Good place to do some work. Over at MainStreetVegan.net, 
our blog this week is our very first post in Spanish because we're trying to get international too. It comes from Main Street Vegan Academy graduate Enrique Velez, and it's about the effect on the health of people in the Caribbean of a high fried food diet. Really interesting. It's there in Spanish, and you can do the Google Translate and read it in English. Quite fascinating. Thanks to Enrique for that post. And now, without further Further ado, da 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 da. Our featured guest, Thomas M. Campbell II, M.D., co-founder and clinical director of the University of Rochester Program for Nutrition and Medicine, where he works with individuals and groups to prevent and treat illness through diet and lifestyle. He's a board-certified family physician and medical director of the T. Colin Campbell Center. For nutrition studies. You know, you can take that online course and get yourself uh, very savvy on plant based nutrition and food policy. Dr. Campbell is a graduate of Cornell University, the author of The China Study Solution. Now, if you've got the hardcover, it was called The Campbell Plan. Good both ways, hard, soft, every other way. And co-author with his father, whom, of course, we all adore and revere, T. Colin Campbell, Ph.D. of The China Study, a worldwide bestseller, which I've just listened to on Audible. It's amazing. I read the book, but listening to it was like getting a whole new book. So thank you for being on the show, Dr. Campbell. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Victoria. It's my pleasure. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And I know we were talking uh, at the break about your passion right now is getting this, this incredible message into the medical system. So how's that going? Well, we are uh, doing some some. Uh, I am quite proud of the work that we're doing here at the University of Rochester. Um, we started a program about a year ago seeing groups of uh, patients. Um, we call it the Program for Nutrition and Medicine, and we use plant-based diets to prevent and treat and treat uh, chronic disease. So we get folks with diabetes or weight to lose, uh, heart disease, a variety of other things who want to optimize their health uh, in the short term and in the long term and we, we help them turn it around. We have a whole variety of programs. So it's uh, University of Rochester is a, it's a large academic medical center. It's, uh, it's a very large, um, uh, you know, c- coverage across western New York, western upstate New York. Um, there's about 23,000 employees. Uh, you know, it's got the, the medical school, and um, it's, a, it's a referral center. So it's a very large um, it's a, it's a major research institution as well, which we are getting into as well. And um, we're really trying to bring a major institution, show a major institution basically that, you know, helping people through diet and lifestyle is an effective way of, of practicing medicine. So are they excited? Is the hosting organization saying, wow, this is great, let's do more, or, or are they just sort of allowing you to do it? Well, they're allowing us to do it. They are supporting us. Um, I think in the long run, uh, when when the you know rubber hits the road, we're going to have to prove our worth, and you know it can't be a money loser forever. <laughs> and that's the biggest that's the biggest challenge with practicing this in the medical system right now, because insurance and the reimbursers do not want to pay for a physician to spend their time, uh, and it does take a lot of time to talk to people about diet and lifestyle. And so mm-hmm. it's a cash-only kind of practice, and that instantly um, you know, becomes a tougher sell for a lot of people. So we're, we, we're, we do work against um, that fact is that there's, it's cash-only. There's, you know, uh, there's no insurance reimbursement and the fact that it's plant-based, which, in, as you know, in our current social environment is um, off-putting for, for a number of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite a hill to climb if yeah. we're going to bring in the exercise piece. Uh, speaking of being able to ask a fabulous plant-based physician a question, whether your insurance pays for it or not, if you happen to be listening live, you could do that right now, 816-347-5519, and ask your question of Dr. Thomas M. Campbell. So, what do you think is the biggest obstacle 
to having people just walk into a doctor and having something like what you do be expected. And the other thing be, oh, gosh, a doctor didn't tell me anything about food. He just gave me a prescription. <laughs> I think that the uh, the biggest obstacle is, is honestly, and I've thought about this a, a ton, because I practiced up until very recently, I practiced in a very standard family medicine practice with a panel of patients who came to me largely having no knowledge of of my nutrition interest. I mean, they came to me in a very, you know, they needed their meds refilled, their belly pain diagnosed, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, I've, I've encountered that real world, uh, real population um, throughout all of my training and, and as an attending physician. And um, I think that the biggest barrier, the number one barrier is social norms. Uh, I've come to come to realize as I've thought about why people do what they do, what what determines our behaviors, and this isn't just for people, you know, making unhealthy choices. This is really all of us, uh, you and I, and and everyone listening. So many of our health behaviors are determined by our social surroundings, whether it's a family or friends. Um, you know, what is normal in the in the family in the in the social environment, and even before it reaches the level of consciousness that's determined so much of what we're open to or closed to. And you look around and you see what the normal American diet is. And for many people, many patients walking into my exam room, I may have been the first person, even though they've been seeing way too many doctors over a very long time, I, I likely was the very first person ever to sit down and say, hey, you got to consider you know, cutting down or even eliminating your meat intake, your processed food intake, and that really will address this. And in, in, I'm going directly at odds with all of the things that they've, <laughs> you know, be, become um, become sort of so important and crucial to their life, which is their their food, their comfort, their social their social uh, connections. You know, all of that is wrapped up. And so that that social aspect is just an absolute bear. And it's not just relevant for patients. I'm trying to um, convince. It's also relevant to practitioners and doctors. I mean, doctors are the same as everyone else. They're, you know, we, we all grow up in a certain family. We have certain friends. We have a family. And, and uh, you know, if, if no one um, is eating plant-based around us, and for most people that's, that's largely true, uh, it seems kind of like a crazy idea. And, and there's just not enough uh, information. People have no idea about the science um, between be behind uh, healthy eating, and so it really just boils down to this social thing. Like, oh, that's crazy, you know. It, it, it's uh, that's the most most challenging barrier, I think. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me that certainly within the field of cardiology, where I would say there's probably the most evidence of, of mm-hmm. what this diet can do, you would think that at least there, physicians would know the science. But I have run into two cardiologists in the past two weeks who were not quite clueless. They knew enough to ask me some questions, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have the depth of understanding of of Ornish and Esselstyn and all these things that your average, you know, teenage vegan knows about. Where's the block? Why why is this information not there? Yeah, there's just a huge lack of education, um, lack of training, and that goes for, you're absolutely right, cardiology should be sort of where the, with the greatest depth and breadth of evidence, and cardiology should be sort of jumping from the rooftops, jumping jumping up and down from the rooftops, yelling about this. Um, but uh, realize that there's all those social things, there's a lack of education, so no one really knows the evidence. They may have heard of Ornish, but, you know, in the back of their head, or maybe they heard it, it was a very small trial. You know, it hasn't hasn't really been done in a randomized control trial since then. It's, let's just kind of discard it, you know, put it, put it away. <laughs> it, I don't know if that's the process in their brain or not. 
And uh, Esselstyn is a case series. You know, it's not randomized control trial, and you know that maybe they haven't even heard of it. It was published in American and Family Physician Family Journal, not not cardiology. And uh, you know, there's all sorts of rationales and, and rationalization that the the education, the information is not out there. Um, and then you also run against the social aspect that physicians, being normal humans, have maybe in their own life have never. Uh, never uh, personally had someone close to them be totally plant-based. And um, uh, unfortunately, those things just become a, become a, a wall of inertia, essentially. Um, you know, realize that as the plant-based community in our little niche community, which I had a patient describe to me as <laughs> after she changed, she said, you know, she began to realize there's this little, there's this subculture. <laughs> and it is a subculture. I mean, it is it is pretty distinct from, from a lot of, uh, of the real world, I, I, I say fondly, in, you know, not in a bad way. but um, And uh, it, from a cardiologist's point of view, you know, you have Esselstyn's papers, you have Ornish's papers. Those are two tiny papers out of, just this mountain of evidence that they have to know and learn, and and um, you know, be, there's becomes just a, a lot of reasons to have this inertia, which mm-hmm. is a shame. Um, but but really, it is. Uh, you know, I, I think when I know of one experience here in Rochester, the chief of cardiology at, at a local hospital, um, you know, had, was having some health problems of his own, and and he had heard enough from other sources that he had heard about it and then he decided to do it himself and now he's dramatically improved his health he's on the radio talking about it you know he's he's uh giving grand rounds about it he's talking uh, guest lectures about it and that type of thing and um it sometimes it just takes that personal that personal connection either with a with a patient who they're really close to or a family member or themselves and somehow that's, unfortunately, you know, that's how um, people are swayed. It's not necessarily mm. by two papers of small trials done that are, that are groundbreaking. It's that personal sort of anecdotal thing. Right. And that's why most of the plant-based physicians that I've met who are actually in practice working with people, they have such great bedside manners, <laughs> No, they're, they're, they're the kind of doctor you'd want to say, be my doctor. Oh, my gosh, you're in New Mexico, but, you know, we'll find somebody. So we have a question um, that came in via email. This uh, came from Margaret, and Margaret says, what if someone is already whole foods, plant-based, and gets sick? I'm in my 70s and presume that at some point I'll get sick. What do I do then? Raw food and green juice? (laughs) <laughs> what do you have to say to Margaret? Well, um, there is an impression that sort of a whole food plant-based diet will prevent and cure everything, and it will not. <laughs> um, that's, that shouldn't diminish your enthusiasm, but it, it will not. You will get sick at some point and, and, and likely end up in the hands of a doctor at some point. And, um, you know, the, if you get sick, depending on the illness, the sickness, hopefully you have a relationship with a physician who you trust who you know at least a little bit um, and who is willing to be respectful and listen to your point of view and your interests. And if you have a relationship with a physician like that, then you go to them and him or her and you you uh, you know proceed with diagnosing your illness and treating your illness and that type of thing. But um, uh, it's difficult if you don't have that relationship because then you're sort of you know, I've, I've had patients from a variety of different angles come in and just sort of be instantly, you know, from the outset, they're suspicious of medical care, suspicious of physicians. And physicians can contribute to <laughs> do important work, you know, diagnose problems, uh, diagnose disease. I mean, we, we are going to get sick at some point, and we hope that it's a brief uh, may, brief illness. Maybe it'll be a flu at age 95 or something, but um, it may be a, a bout of uh, some other type of chronic disease, and, and you need to have a relationship with a physician you trust. So mm. before getting sick, I suggest um, you know tr- trying to find someone who you can get along with. That makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting to me. Your original background was not science, correct? Correct. You were going to be an actor, I think. 
Yeah, I was. Uh, you're in New York City there, so you know the you know the drill pretty well. But I had uh, studied in uh, theater at Cornell University, and then I that was a liberal arts, not a bachelor's of fine arts. So I, I had a wide range of education there. But I um, then went to Chicago, and I I pursued professional acting there for a year, which meant that I was an assistant paralegal. <laughs> while I, while I, while I, you know, did uh, did some stage uh, shows for free uh, when I could. Ah, um, uh, the actor's and, life. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the that's the common story, and that's that's where I I that's where I was when I when I was approached by my parents to work with my dad on the China study. But and, but the reason I ask, and it's fascinating, is is you've used the word relationship more than once. And it really seems to be a very important part of the way you look at the practice of medicine. And I find it very interesting that you came from the humanities and went into medicine. Right. So maybe that's what we all need to be looking for. Maybe if we can't <laughs> find a doctor who's plant-based, we want one with a liberal arts degree. Right, yeah. So, I, I always encourage people, you know, it's not the end-all, be-all to find a doctor who's plant-based themselves. You've got to find someone who's open to your point of view and respectful. That's the number one thing. And well, that's a thing. There's lots so, of doctors out there that, that, that are that way, lots of primary care doctors that are that yeah. way. Because there are still some who think it's dangerous and you're going to harm yourself. Yeah, that's, I think, becoming a shrinking minority. Boy, I hope so. So everybody on Earth has read the China study. Okay, not everybody on Earth, because if everybody on Earth had read it, we would have a very different world. But probably most of the people who listen to this program have read it. But you have your very own book, The China Study Solution. So tell us about that. Yeah, that was a book that was, you know, we got so, we'd go around and speak and we get so many of the same questions and they're very good questions, but it's what people who are sort of new and that sort of tackle the myths and the, and the conceptions about this diet, you know, what about fish? What about oil? Why, why avoid oil? Uh, what about gluten? More recently, a hot thing. Um, what about soy? I heard soy was bad and the estrogens and so forth. And in the China study, as you know, there's really there's only about four pages on the actual on the actual food plan, and um, I, I wanted to write more of a how-to book for for my patients than as a follow-up to the China study, and so uh, you know after um, having some experience and, and the credentials and um, doing a lot of work uh, looking at the research, I wrote a book that was sort of a how-to manual answering some of the t- typical questions we get as well as um, what I found to be a useful way to approach changing uh, behavior. Um, so there's a little bit of behavior change as well as, of course, you know, over 50 recipes and, and uh, menu plan and that type of thing. Wonderful. So I'm just going to jump right in here and ask you those very questions that mm-hmm. so many people ask you that it caused you to write another book. What about fish? Yeah, the fish is a, a, a tricky one because if you um, – are honest with reviewing the literature, there is evidence that uh, people who consume fish have lower rates of heart disease. Um, one of the, <laughs> there was a, a recent thing in the Adventist uh, world actually that showed that pescatarians had a lower rate of colon cancer, if I remember correctly. And there's uh, evidence that fish uh, is linked to lower risk of consuming fish three times a week is lower, linked lower risk of stroke. And, um, you know that that uh, has led to this, and, and we we have all this information about omega three fatty acids, which are, of course are uh, fish are rich as a rich source of omega three fatty acids, uh, DHA, EPA, and um, and those things seem to be good when we when we check them in in some studies. Uh, so there's this idea that fish is a health food and that you can um, sort of give up the red meat and just eat fish every day. And, you know, you're going to be hunky-dory, everything's great. But there is a dark side to that. And the, and the dark side is that um, in some research, fish protein has been shown to increase uh, cholesterol levels as much as other types of animal proteins. Um, there's also this uh, other research uh, showing that uh, pescatarians do a little bit worse than vegans in, a, in different health outcomes. 
and um, you know it's it's kind of this uh, a bit of a wash. You know, some good, some bad. We know that fish also contains, of course, contaminants like mercury and uh, other dangerous things that in themselves can increase the risk of heart disease. So it gets very confusing. And in the way that I've when I look reviewed the literature, um, the, I think that uh, first of all. If, if I'm being very honest and, and uh, with, to the science, I think it's difficult to say with absolute certainty that small bits of fish um, are going to hurt you in any way. Or, you know, there may be, based on the literature, there may be a possibility that there may be some benefit, and that's sort of the macrobiotic kind of approach to small amounts of fish. Um, but I don't recommend that to my patients. I don't recommend it because if you look at the the greatest research that I know of, the evidence intervention showing people reversing heart disease, even at advanced stages, they don't include fish. Um, so you don't need fish for heart health. And then you look at some of the evidence, you go back to some of those studies as I've done, looking at where showing that fish is uh, is better for heart disease and so forth. It's largely an issue of comparison. They're comparison, comparing sort of Western countries eating red meat and junky food with people consuming fish, and the people eating fish are might be doing other things that are a little bit better as well. And some of these studies don't even measure for these confounders, you know, fruits and vegetable intake and so forth, fiber intake. And um, it's quite possible that some of the benefits of fish are not solely due to fish in some of these studies. And, and so we know some of the harms. We know, uh, uh, we know that it's not necessary and then um, additionally, of course, important to me is the um, environmental uh, reasons, which I don't really get into in the book because it's really just about the science of health. But the environmental health uh, effects of consuming fish are dramatic, dramatically bad, um, dramatically bad. Uh, we shouldn't, you know, consuming any fish is really quite terrible for our oceans. So mm. I encourage people to avoid fish. Uh, <laughs> that was a long answer, but there, there's a reason why there is confusion about fish. Um, mm-hmm, it's because mm-hmm. there's, there's some, there's some um, back and forth in the literature. Okay. Now, that may have been a long answer, but you have within that a really fabulous tweet, and that is the environmental results of consuming fish is dramatically bad. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's wonderful. Right. Now, yeah. just before we leave this topic, omega-3 fatty acids, do you recommend that people who choose not to consume fish take some algae-based uh, EFA? I don't. Um, I uh, If you look at most of the fatty acid studies, um, they don't show much benefit. That's for a general population, though. That's not, it, it's not specific to vegans. Um, there hasn't been a lot of research looking at fatty acid uh, status among vegans who otherwise, you know, don't consume fish, obviously. And um, it may be a question of we need more evidence, we need more science in this particular area. But I, uh, I know Dr. Greger recently came out suggesting an um, omega-3 uh, source, and I need to review that literature still. But I think that um, you look at the, the weight, the depth and breadth of evidence, and I don't think that there's enough benefit. You know, like you look for preventing heart disease, you look for treating heart disease, and fish oil capsules have never been, they, they do not um, help. And uh, diabetes, you go, down, go on down the list, diabetes, um, cognitive uh, dysfunction, uh, largely, um, that's, a, that's the area that Dr. Greger focused on. But, um, you know, there's really hasn't been much benefit, in, and it's been tested in many, many, many different studies. So I don't recommend uh, routinely for everyone a, a, um, an omega-3 uh, supplement, although I do think having a daily, some daily ground flaxseed or chia seed is, a perfectly reasonable and a thing to do and a good idea. It's something that I do every day. Okay. Well, then, let's just move right along to the question that I can guarantee just about any speaker on this topic is going to get at every talk, and that is soy. Yeah. Soy is actually a really good thing. Um, soy has uh, some chemicals in it that people thought were big, bad, and scary things called phytoestrogens. 
chemicals that are similar in function and, and form to estrogens in our body. And uh, that kind of scared a lot of women with breast cancer in particular because we know estrogen activity is a risk factor. High estrogens can be a risk factor for uh, breast cancers. So um, it became sort of the big bad thing to avoid uh, soy. And if you look at the ongoing evidence, it's just been shown in multiple studies now for women uh, hoping to prevent breast cancer and women with breast cancer who hope to increase their odds of survival or not getting it, you know, recurrence. Uh, the evidence strongly suggests that uh, soy is linked to reduce, uh, beneficial outcomes. Let me put it that way. It's linked to beneficial outcomes in all scenarios. So, um, you know, soybeans, uh, plain tofu, uh, all of it is fine from the estrogen point of view. We know... I won't get into the, you know, some the mechanisms, but um, soy is a is a good is soy is a good thing. I do caution people to not overdo the processed soy. I mean, you can get soy fake meats and soy um, soy milk, and you, gosh, you could have tofu scramble, you know, three glasses of soy milk a day and a, and a fake meat for dinner made of soy, and, and man, you're just overdoing all the processed junk in, in that case. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of soy here and there is absolutely fine. It's healthy. You can eat edamame, the, the whole soybean, until you're blue in the face. <laughs> um, and uh, I encourage people to do that as a snack. But it's not, uh, it's, certainly, it's certainly nothing to be avoided. Even women uh, with breast cancer and even women who are on um, tamoxifen or Rimidex, one of the uh, other... Um, uh, hormone-modulating drugs. You know, in terms of the non-dairy milks, you know, I was doing this back when we made milk ourselves in a blender with some cashew nuts and water. But now there are lots of commercial milks available. Obviously, they're processed. How processed are they? How bad are they? Is it okay if we get a couple of glasses a day in our smoothies and on our cereal? Yeah, I think that's fine. I, I encourage people to get the unsweetened and you got to be a little careful. Some of the varieties of plant milks, they have no added sugar, but somehow they're incredibly high in sugar. So there's if one thing that pops to mind is oat milk, uh, even rice milk. They don't ha- necessarily have added sugar, but uh, you look at their sugar content, and I don't know how the heck they do it, but somehow they've they've processed uh, oats and rice. Uh, into a syrup, basically, you know, and made made milk of it. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, unsweetened plant milks, uh, they're so dilute, um, Victoria, that they're, they're like, gosh, a, a cup is only about 30 or 40 calories. And um, they're so dilute, it's mostly water. Uh I don't. I don't think people should be getting three glasses a day of the things, particularly because they're supplemented with calcium, which is a good thing in small amounts for for people transitioning. But it's not. Um, it's it, if you drank three glass, three big glasses a day of this stuff, you'd be taking in a lot of supplemental calcium that you don't really need. Mm. And um, you know, I just I just stick to it on your cereal in a, in an occasional smoothie. That you know, that's fine. Okay. But doing doing multiple servings a day is probably not not a good idea. Okay, that's wise. Now I, we've got to get to oil before uh, before we finish in in four minutes. I'm still completely perplexed about oil. I see that a lot of people try to do it, and they say, oh, my gosh, I tried to be vegan, but it was just so hard to cook without oil. (laughs) It's like, excuse me, plenty of vegans use oil and maybe too much of it. I've spoken with some dietitians who are saying that having some fat is essential, and if you don't like nuts or avocado or you've got a nut allergy, there's nothing wrong with some organic canola oil. I am just massively confused. <laughs> Can you uh, fix all that in three minutes? Yeah, you just don't need it. Um, you know, the idea that humans need ref- oils, and I consider all oils to be high examples of highly processed foods, even that cold-pressed extra virgin olive oil. What are you doing with the rest of the olive after you've, you've pressed out the olive oil? You're throwing it away or you're making rabbit food out of it or something. 
and it takes a lot. You're throwing away a lot of fiber, a lot of protein, a lot of iron, a lot of other uh, useful uh, minerals and, and um, many vitamins except for the fat-soluble vitamins, and you're left with just pure, 100% pure fat. And you don't need it. We certainly didn't evolve, you know, seeing puddles of, of oil that we could consume. Um, and it's a it's it's not uh, it's not healthy. Uh, evidence shows that it's acutely detrimental to um, the the function of your arteries, and not to mention the fact of uh, in my personal experience, its effect on weight. Uh, people get strict about the oil, and suddenly a lot of their nagging issues, the weight and so forth, kind of disappear. So. I encourage people to um, avoid added oils of all kinds. So we need to get the China Study solution and get those 50 recipes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Tom, I will be completely honest. The only oil that I use anymore is to saute an onion. And I wrote a book back in 1994 called Get the Fat Out, where I was Uh talking about, you know, you can use water and lemon juice and cooking wine and vegetable broth. It just doesn't seem to do to an onion what a little bit of oil will do. (laughs) But I'll try. I'll try. I have four very devoted oil-free people coming to my Main Street Vegan Academy class that starts this Friday. So I'll do it for them, and maybe it'll stick. Great. So thank you. Thank you for all you do in the world. Certainly uh, give my love to your parents, two of the best people who have ever walked this planet. (laughs) So listeners... Lots to think about after this show. Dr. Thomas Campbell, the second MD, the China Study Solution. Get it, read it, cook from it. It'll change your life. And, and oh, great good luck with everything you're doing up there at the University of Rochester. I, I will, if I have a second, just will mention yeah. we're doing a one-week immersion coming up this summer in July that uh, people from around the country can come to. So if your listeners are interested, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. And my dad attends and, and participates as well. Ooh, so do they go to urnutritioninmedicine.com for that information? Exactly. Okay, yep, perfect. Exactly right. So we will put up all of Dr. Campbell's URLs and Alex Hershef's as well. Thanks so much to Unity Online Radio for hosting. Thanks to our friends at Vegan Outreach. And thanks to you for taking this time and listening and doing your part to make the world kinder, healthier, saner, and all the way better. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on a Course in Miracles with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free every Friday at 2 p.m. Central here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes life can seem like a jigsaw puzzle. Even if we think we have a clear picture of what we want, we may become overwhelmed in our efforts to fit all the pieces together. Although each of our lives may look different on the outside, what we are all striving to create is the same, peace of mind. 
We mistakenly think that peace will be ours once we have fit all the pieces of our lives into place. But peace isn't dependent on outer circumstances, and it's not something that must be finished. It's a work in progress within each of us. If I want to picture peace clearly, I look within myself. The peace I've been missing is there. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org. Somewhere, tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio, Words from Our Past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past, along with historical background from the early days of the Unity movement. That's Unity Classic Radio, Words from Our Past, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM. The voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts. 